Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. It is July 3rd. It's July 4th weekend. What are you doing here? You should be camping right now. Uh, We're so glad that you are here, though. Thanks for those of you watching online or most likely watching on replay because you were camping. Uh, We're so glad that uh, you come out today. We're uh, continuing a series we kicked off last week called The Crisis of Decline. It's going to be a three-part series, so next week will be the, uh, the big finale for it. Um, as you can see, I dressed this morning because it was sunny out when I left my house, uh, and the rainstorm uh, came a lot later, so I apologize uh, in advance for that, or looking at it going, what is this guy doing? Anyways, that's why. Um, we're going to talk about decline for a little bit, uh, and, and the crisis that comes with it. Imagine owning a, a video store, like a video rental store. Remember those? Remember those things? Some of you guys, if you're under like 20, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but they used to rent videos. There used to be stores that you would go into and... Um, give them your, your credit card number and uh, then, you know, keep it for like a day and a half and it'd be $40 and then you just return it or whatever. Um, imagine being an owner of one of those in about 2006 or so, right? So, because uh, in, in, in 2002, I, I was doing research on this this week, DVDs overtook the VHS market in 2002 just to make you feel old or whatever. And I would have thought, man, I would have pushed that back to like the early 90s, but it was 2000, 2002 is when it, when it became more popular and more people were buying DVDs than they were buying uh, VHS tapes. And there was about a four-year window where Blockbuster was basically printing money right? Using loose definitions of new releases and charging you a fortune and then you late fees and all that kind of stuff where there was, the, the business model w- was going extremely well. And I remember uh, in about 05, 06, somewhere in that window, the first red box I was aware of showed up at the Yokes on Road 68 in Pasco. And I thought to myself, this is a game changer. This is the, this is the way of the future. Like this is going to be, I show up here, I can get it for like 99 cents or something like that. And I just return it right here or any red box. I, would, I, would, I drove, I, like once I, we were going to Oregon and I took the red box with me just to do it, just to be like, I bought this in a different state and it had no, I have no reason to do this. I didn't drive there for that, but I was going there anyways. And I thought I'm going to test this out and see how it works. And it worked. They accepted it. And I paid a dollar. I dropped it off in Hood River. It was amazing. So anyways, I thought this is the future. And I thought to myself, when I saw the red box, I go, man, if I had any money to invest, this is what I would invest it in, Right. And luckily, I was uh, I was poor, so we didn't uh, didn't didn't do that. Um, and then in 2007, Netflix started streaming things. They were the you know the, they used to do just the mail and stuff, and then they started streaming things. And I thought to myself, that's an idea that will never take off, right? And uh, and this is why I'm not good at investing. And you should never listen to me. And why we pay people much smarter than us to go here, take my money and just make it better, make it bigger and give back to me when I'm 68 or something like that. Anyways, uh, and now today I have a, uh, this is true. I have a drawer full of DVDs in a dresser in our living room and I don't even own a DVD player. I have DVDs that I cannot play in my home. Our DVD player broke four or five years ago because um, we have four kids and, uh, and they just would put anything and everything in that little tray. 
And, uh, and then I never replaced it and I've never once missed it. I, I, everything, I'll go and be like, oh, we should watch this. And it's already straight. Anyway, it's the whole change of things. It's amazing, right? And as a consumer, the user experience and the price of entry have only improved. And that's generally how it works in capitalistic markets, right? And competition and all that jazz. But imagine it not from a consumer side of things, but from a, from, from a producer side of things. Imagine being a, a, a store owner of Blockbuster or a franchise owner or whatever. Imagine having hundreds, if not maybe even thousands of, of employees whose families are dependent on the steady flow of income called a paycheck. Uh, you employ them, they, they come in and tra- trade you hours of time uh, for, for money uh, and then uh, all of that. Uh, and then imagine having uh, millions of dollars spent millions of dollars on buildings and infrastructure to be able to manage all of the expected growth that you had because from 2002 to 2006, you're basically printing money going, this is going to last forever. This is going to be amazing. We can capitalize on this. Imagine watching then the numbers come stumbling in and one bad quarter that you thought was like a speed bump or something like that turns into three bad quarters and soon a steady decline of revenue in the business model, what you thought was a speed bump ended up being a massive hill. Uh, and, and then like the whole game changed, like the whole format changed. And, and, and imagine being in that, watching that decline kind of take place uh, in front of you. And for some of you, this isn't like a theoretical fantasy. Uh, this is an especially painful memory because you attempted to start a business. You did this. I'm going to leave this job. I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to do something. Uh, and then, uh, and maybe it started out great for a little while and then, and then it walked away. Or maybe it was just a, a traditional job or whatever. That's just, but there was just something, you, you, something began to change and, uh, and now life looks a lot different. When numbers are telling a story, the earlier you're brave enough to see it, the better, right? When numbers begin to tell a story, and this, again, this is not investment advice. I'm not telling you to move your 401k into more recessions coming. I have no idea. Trust me. I was an early adopter of investing in Redbox. Don't listen to me, okay? Uh, but when numbers are telling a story, you, you, you would be, it would be to your benefit to see it as early as possible and to be brave enough to actually read the numbers for what they are. With that being true, uh, last week I kicked off a series by talking about numbers reflecting the status of religion in America as provided through like a poll thing that came out uh, uh, about two weeks ago from the Gallup organization, one of the most respected polling kind of people. Uh, and they do a ton of stuff. They do polit- politics, they do uh, economy. Uh, and one of the things they do is, is religion through the basis of polls and calling people up and testing and all that kind of stuff. And when they released these numbers, um, uh, what I saw was, uh, w- was inspired part of this series. Like, well, gosh, we probably need to talk about something like this. I called this series uh, The Crisis of Decline, but the subtitle uh, uh, behind it was simply this, a series on losing your faith, not because I want you to lose your faith, right? That's not the goal of it, but um, because in likelihood, if I'm reading the stories correctly or the numbers correctly, the numbers are telling me a story and I want to be brave enough to be able to see it. Most likely, in, in my opinion, then this kind of stuff is kind of already happening. And so we got to look at it and talk about it. So I'm going to briefly, I did this a little bit last week, but I know it's summertime. So I'm going to throw these numbers up because I think they're really important and they do set the tone for the series. If you come back next week, I'm probably going to do the same thing on the slide. So you can just like, I don't know, check your phone on this one. But here, here's what they said. Uh, here, here's the questions that they asked. How important would you say religion is in your own life? Very important, fairly important, not very important. 49% of Americans said uh, religion is very important in my life, which is 
a relatively good number considering you know, what we feel like is oh, an increasingly more secular society, which is true because look at, these, look at the decline. Look at the, the flow from 2011 to 21. And most of these stats are gonna come from a kind of a 10-year flow. But 49% said very important, 27 fairly important. So, so if you add those two things together, 76% of people said religion is either fairly important or very important uh, in my life. And it goes on. Next slide, if you can go to the next one for me. How often do you attend church? Remember, the same group of people, right? This is the same question. Oh, so 50% of you say it's very important in your life. 20, uh, how, many, how often do you attend church or synagogue? Every week, almost every week, about once a month, seldom or never. Uh, 22% said every week, uh, 9% almost every week, about once a month, 11. Now, here's the deal. This is what I said last week. This number is interesting to me. 2020, when everything was closed, 24% of you said you came to church every week because you're all liars, <laughs> and that's not true. Like, I was here by myself with our tech team streaming on the internet. So it does caution me to be like, is all of this garbage or how does that work? I don't know. But again, uh, if you look at it, regardless of this, what you see is a a steady decline. Like if I'm reading the numbers correctly, um, this has gone down. Next question, number three. Um, At the present time, do you think religion as a whole is increasing its influence on American life or losing its influence on American life in general? uh, 21% said, oh, it's increasing, it's doing great. Uh, 78% losing its influence. And then, you know, people, some people are like, whatever, I'm not even, no opinion. I have no opinion on that. But again, a steady decline in this way. And then the last question that I thought was was really important uh, was simply this, a, a really simple question. Do you believe in God? Not Christian God, Allah God, not anything, just do you believe in a higher power, a deity of some sort? Do you believe in God? Uh, and in May of 2022, uh, 81% of Americans said yes, which still feels like a really high number, except when you look at kind of where it's come from um, and, where, and the, the trajectory that it's been on. These numbers are telling us a, a, a story in this way. And rather than I said this saying a lot of people in my position are read this kind of like going, oh boy, this is, we're losing market share. Interestingly enough, I said last week, I think this is kind of could potentially for us as a unique community for us, that I think uh, reflects an incredible opportunity for us. Our target market share is getting bigger. We, we want to address people who, um, uh, who aren't typically into church or are growing disillusioned with that or, or it's never really been their paradigm or we didn't get raised in that sort of scenario or whatever. Um, but I also think that it's kind of indicative of sort of a wake up to our current reality, our status of reality in terms of we have a bunch of people who say they believe in God, um, who say that uh, it's uh, relatively important for them. But again, there's a big gap between 81% believe in God and 49% say that religion is very important to them. And then attendance-wise and participation-wise, we're seeing a, 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 a fade away from something that I say I believe in logistically or logically or whatever to actual behavioral change of, of my day-to-day life. I, I believe in God. Does it actually in, uh, uh, impact or influence the way that I do life? Increasingly less so is basically the, the story of this. And I said last week, I think part of it is because we're living in a unique time frame, right? Um, uh, Charles Taylor, this guy, talks about how we live in this um, uh, this uh, imminent state or this imminent frame. Imminence being simply defined, I'll quickly go through this definition, existing or operating within. Like we lived in a more closed off sort of uh, this thing. We don't need the idea of an unexplainable God. More and more things in our existence are explainable and predictable and, and able to kind of, we have answers for these things. And it's great. We we've, we've have scientists and really smart people who have thought through some of the philosophers 
who would think through these things. We have more answers and more books. We have more access to information now. Your kids have more access to information now on their phones, in their pockets, uh, than you ever had growing up if you're over the age of 40, right? I mean, and they don't use it. They use it to play Roblox, but they have it. It's right there. You know what I mean? Like they could if they wanted to. And we say in this imminent frame, everything that gives us life is bound in the natural uh, and the material. Everything that brings life to us has to do with things that we can touch and see. And, and, and the idea of, uh, of living uh, at, a, at a different level is like, well, it's great. I, I want that. But I also, like money solves a lot of problems. Things solve, a lot. if I could just get this kind of um, uh, fixed, then this would be, this would be a, a better way of doing life for me. We have, or soon enough, we'll have everything that we need. That's the kind of mind frame that we operate with, which is the imminent uh, mindset on this. More and more things are becoming explainable. I'll give you an example. Um, last night, we, uh, you, you saw the rainstorm, the thunderstorm. It was beautiful. We were driving home and, and got to see all this. And then my wife took the kids out when that like double rainbow thing started appearing in the sky. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, go on social media. Everybody's posting. You'll see it. So, uh, and she began to ask my kids, guys, um, what do we know about rainbows, right? This is a pastor's wife asking pastor's kids about what do we know about rainbows, thinking there's gonna be some certain angle that we're gonna take there, right? And they go, oh, you know, it's the light reflecting off the spectrum of the color. They're freaking smart, right? They, one of them used the word fractals. I said, you don't even know what you're saying, right? Uh, but they're, they're saying, oh yeah, it's the light. Isn't it beautiful? And Kyla's like, yes, that's, Definitely true. I'm glad you learned that about rainbow. What else do we know about rainbows, right? Uh, and we're trying to feed this into this sort of question. Well, it comes out with, when the rain is out there. I know. Is there anything else? Noah, is there anything else that, you know, would have? any? Uh, and, and sure enough, they got around to it, right? Oh, yeah, you know, this is the story of there's a, knowing that it's God showing that they're making a promise and all this kind of stuff. But it's amazing, like, Less and less so um, is, is, the, is the initial response uh, kind of in that direction. More and more so, we, we're, we're saying, we know what it is. It's the, it's the light reflecting on this. And, and, and it's good. Like, I want my kids to grow up in a society that, that doesn't have to rely on unexplainable and, and put everything into this box and, and keep it there. But, but it does lead us to a spot where we go, um, maybe, perhaps, or we begin to think everything's explainable. Give us enough time. Give us enough time and we'll figure it out. Even the things that we don't know. When scientists say, well, we're not really sure about string theory and galaxies just seems to be, is the universe infinite or just constantly expanding? We don't really know. But in the back of our minds, we think, yeah, but someday we will. Someday we will. We've got enough brains on this. We've got enough, with enough time and enough research and enough resources, we'll figure this whole thing out. Why? Because we live and operate in a world that kind of begins to think everything is explainable, everything is predictable, everything is here. It is closed off. We no longer need a deity. We, and right, and good, for good reason, we don't need to be like, God, I, you know, if I, I, I pray for rain or I do this sacrifice for rain or I do this dance for rain or whatever, we don't need that. We know how the systems kind of work here, which leads us to the question that becomes uh, so critical for this. Like who needs God in, anymore, right? I still believe in it because maybe I'm supposed to or it's American or um, you know, I grew up in that or I'm appeasing my parents or I, or I still have some sort of idea of a God who created and designed all of this. But like uh, who in, in this frame, we can get more and more relevant of the question and, and more and more 
of an option, right? And that was the thing we said last week was why 1,500 years ago would it be ridiculous to think of an existence that doesn't um, have a place for God or the transcendence of God. And now within the last 500 years, not only is it an option, for some people it feels inescapable. Like, of course I, I have to believe that. Who needs God anymore? And the story of scripture as a whole is a story of God interrupting history, first through establishing Israel, second by the arrival of Christ, and we, then we get to this spot, and now all of that is in the distant past. And so we wonder, we begin to, you know, if we live in this imminent frame, if we lived in this closed off sort of thing long enough, we begin to think about, I wonder if God is finally up against something that he just can't break through. I wonder if, if, uh, if this is, we, we eventually get to the spot, we just don't need that idea of God anymore. Have we grown out of our need for a God who interacts with his creation? I mean, who needs an unexplainable God anymore? Um, one of the most important theologians of the last 100 years was also a pastor who led his church through World War II uh, in, in Germany and through its aftermath, asking similar questions to the one I just posted, because these aren't, these aren't questions that only relate to us living in 2022. These are kind of, since modernity sort of has taken, it's kind of moved towards this, and we've become more and more, uh, he, he began to see this sort of early. Uh, his name was Carl Barton. His early life was spent in apologetics, making a coherent case for Christianity. Apologetics is basically working through arguments for the existence of God. Like I can reason with you, I can talk through uh, different stuff and, and there's tons of resources out there and it's a big, big movement and perhaps something that you maybe went into and grew up going to and, and I gotta take a class. I want more answers and more answers and more answers. Apologetics has its place and it's, and, and it's really, really great. Uh, but he realized at some point the limited value of playing by these rules when the rule is reason and explainability and, and plausibility and predictability, um, and, and you, you stay in that and you only allow God to be there, will allow you a space to live and have a place in our life as long as you're explainable, as long as you're reasonable, as long as it makes sense for me, as long as it is somewhat predictable, uh, then I can believe in a God. But anything beyond that is kind of like, I don't live any part of my life in that way. So there is no place for you, and he's realizing. Listen, the um, he, the unique spot that he was in was he was somebody who was really, really smart, wrote a lot of books, and was considered a theologian. But he also had a foot within the church, and so he goes, "I can talk about it over here, but what I see in my people are a people who need to experience a God who is God. Uh, they need to know that, that, that there exists a place for this, even in the world that we currently live in. As we try and for him make sense of how could evil." Uh, uprise itself in the way that it has these last, this last decade in, in, in Germany and all of that? How can we make sense of evil and how can we make sense of the world? And what is a God who allows this kind of, these kind of stories to take place and, and things to happen? Can I be, even believe in a God like that? So he goes, I'm, I'm good. Listen, he's, he's like, he would say, I'm really good at apologetics. I could probably argue my way into convincing you to a reasonable extent. I mean, every, everything ends with some sort of a jump of faith, but I could argue uh, apologetically into a way for, for most people to believe in God. But he's also like, but I see that sometimes when you play by those rules, and when you only allow God to be in a space when he's predictable, when he's explainable, um, then, then we're really kind of limiting. We're, we're telling God what he can and cannot be. And he would say, he came to the conclusion, if God is a being who exists beyond our levels of comprehension, if we would say, what is God? Well, God is undefinable. God is you know, bigger than me. He's smarter than me. He's whatever, beyond anything, uh, all levels of comprehension, then perhaps he, she, it, whatever, probably deserves to be treated as such. 
And so when we come into a situation where we would say, all right, arms crossed, I live in a mostly condensed and closed in kind of uh, imminent mindset of life. Like I believe the things that I see. I believe in mortgages. I believe in macroeconomics. I believe in microeconomics. I believe in politics, that everybody's shady and everybody has an angle. I have my own sense of how things work. I've lived long enough where I trust things long enough. I know how things work. And we come into a religious setting and we go arms crossed like, okay, um, I'm open to the idea of a God who's big and and wants to interact. I know that the story of scripture is that God has intersected at points throughout history, um, but it's gonna be on him, it, that, whatever, to explain himself to me, to buy me over to this side of things. So our demand is constantly explain, even though we would never say that because it feels aggressive and egotistical, but we would say, uh, explain yourself and I'll see if I buy in. I'll see if, if I can get there. If you can reason your way enough or if you become explainable enough to me, then I'll sign up for this. One of the interesting stories uh, that we have of God showing up in, uh, in person in, in, in history, according at least to the Hebrew scriptures, is in the book of Exodus. It's in Exodus chapter three. Exodus was a historical narrative for the people of Israel as they tried to make sense where we came from and who we are. I think a lot of it was written probably when they were in exile, but this is, this is us. We were a people who were enslaved in Egypt. We have a long history of, of, um, of God showing up to our forefather Abraham and saying, I'm gonna make you into this great and mighty nation. Then he had son who had a son who had a son who had a son. Finally, Joseph was there and then Joseph goes into Egypt because there's a drought. They finally, uh, they, they, they go in there first as guests and then over time uh, they become so great uh, and, and such a great number and a great resource that Pharaoh turns them into slaves and they became a slave people uh, for 400 years. That's the, the story and then uh, of kind of the Israelite people. And then God's interaction, specific interaction, pulling them out of that system and into a new system. That's what the entire book of Exodus as a historical kind of take has it for us. And that whole Exodus out of Egypt into this is initiated by a person, or initiated by God, but done through a person uh, who becomes a big character in this story and through the first five books of, of, of the Old Testament in the name of Moses, um, who uh, is put in the Nile River as a child and, and raised as a, a, a son, adopted son of Pharaoh and given all this power. He then gets in on the bad side of Pharaoh after murdering somebody. I'm speeding through this story, but he, he finds himself exiled into the desert. And while he's in the desert, he becomes uh, friends with these people and he begins working for somebody named Jethro. Uh, and he, he finds himself... Um, probably feeling like, uh, like you would, an exiled uh, refugee. I, I have no home. I was raised here, but I'm not really liked by my people. I've got really no, no body and no place to go to. And the story picks up in Exodus chapter three as he's kind of dealing with this. And it says this, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, literally holy mountain, Right? And uh, who knows, speculation on whether this was a great place to graze or perhaps he's just curious. Like if you felt like there was something unique about your calling, if there was a reason that I was saved from being drowned in the Nile, if there was a reason that I was raised in Pharaoh's home and look a certain way and talk a certain way and have leadership a certain way and influence a certain way. And yet I find myself kind of like 
lost and broken. Like my own, he would say, my own life has been a series of decline. Like the last several years have been decline, 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 decline. And it's caused an identity crisis for me. Would it be surprising at all that he find, he hears about a place being called a holy mountain and wants to spend time around there? Perhaps his curiosity saying, maybe if I just linger there, maybe if I just go around there, maybe if I'm just within the vicinity of this place, something, some God, some, some change will affect me. Like, like uh, you know, we, we get curious. We, we find ourselves, we find, remember in high school when you found out where the cute girl worked and all of a sudden you were way into frozen yogurt and you've never been in frozen yogurt before. And you're like, I'm just going to go get some frozen yogurt, mom. And your mom's like, when were you, did you get into frozen yogurt? And you're like, ah, recently, right? And then she finds out that this girl works there and you're like, oh, now it all makes sense, right? This is what's happening here. I, I, I think this story is, he's hearing, you say this is a holy mountain? all right, I'm gonna go check this out. I'm gonna go graze my flocks near this thing and just see what happens, right? And see if I can get her number or whatever the case may be. All right, verse two. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'm gonna go over and see this strange sight. Why does this bush not burn up? Why is this thing taking place? It's funny because in this story, he could have just kept walking and do this, but it says he turned aside. It's, it's almost as if God didn't reach out to him. He just kind of presented himself in a certain way and then saw and waited to see if Moses would direct his attention that way or give him, because if he turns to the right and goes away, maybe none of this ever happens and maybe God raises up a new Moses or a different person in this way. But he's, he's setting himself up for potentially success if you'll simply respond and if you'll simply look, right? So Moses thought, I'm gonna go over and see the strange shy. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Uh, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing um, is holy ground. And then he goes on to be able to see, I've heard the cries of my people crying out from Egypt. They need uh, somebody to come and redeem them from this situation. They need a leader. They need somebody to lead them out into a new life. And I think that man is you. And I want you to leave where you're at, leave your flock, leave your family and, and, and go do this great thing. But Moses said, and we're gonna jump ahead to verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody. And, and I think it's kind of tongue in cheek because Moses knows I, the story of my birth. I, I've been told this since a child. I was a miracle baby. I was destined to be eaten by the crocodiles on the Nile. And then I was saved, not just by a random person, but by Pharaoh's daughter. That's crazy. I was invited to live and to be raised in the, under the influence and in, in the household of Pharaoh. That's unique. Not everybody gets this. I'm sure he's felt a, for a majority of his life, I'm someone special. But then he goes through a crisis of decline going, maybe that was false. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm nothing. More likely, I'm nobody. I'm a nobody. So then when this begins to take place, and surely this is unique for him too. I, I, he's never, I've never seen a bush like this before. What's going on? The voice calling out, like what's going on? And then, and then this God, this voice, this something telling me that I'm supposed to go do something. Like, who am I? And he kind of knows in his heart, I think, I, I think I do have something. I don't know what it is, but who am I? I'm gonna take the more humble approach and say, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. 
Uh, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship on this mountain. You're gonna come back here. You're gonna remember this spot. This is gonna be on the way back to the land that I'm taking you. And you'll get here someday. And you're gonna be like, you're gonna look back and be like, remember that day that I saw this? Remember when it all started? Remember, remember, right? Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, a reasonable question, right? The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Suppose I do this. Suppose I take you up on this. When I go to them and say, God has sent me, it's been 400 years that they have been in this slave mentality. So it's not, it's not even the people who initially came down from Israel the first time, who had some sort of a heritage or you know, told, retold stories about Abraham being approached by, or Abram at that time being approached by God saying, I'm gonna call you into a mighty nation. I'm gonna make you big and great. And then Jacob being Israel. Like these people probably have forgotten everything about this. Suppose I even go and say, God is calling you to do this. Who should I even say it is? Like, what's your name? What can we call you? What, what, what is it that I'm supposed to tell, communicate to them so that they know that we're on the same page? And this is a big deal because in this world, all of these nations had their gods that they would pray to and they all had names and the names reflected typically the power in which they held. The God Ra was over the sun, right? The God, whatever, all of their names associated with something. Oh, that's the fertility God. That's the rain God. That's the this God. So he's going, I'm in, but I'm using my current framework of what I, what I think I know about deities to say, who should I say? What are you about? Who are you? How do we communicate this in a way that communicates what, I, what I'm trying to ask, or you know, I'm, try, I'm trying to get buy-in from them so that they'll believe me, follow me, respond to me, and actually walk out with me. Suppose I go to the Israelites and the God of your father just sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Then what am I gonna tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Uh, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That first part sounds a little bit like Popeye a little bit, right? I am, I am, I am. Uh, and the, the, the actual words in the Hebrew uh, reflect this. And some other translation, one of my favorite translations has this. They say, I will be what I will be. I, what, I, what I am, I will be. Like even to give you a name to try and like give you some sort of an understanding of who I am really doesn't even fit. If I was to try and give you a name, you would say, oh, you're the God of, you're the God of this. But I'm more than that. I am what I am, you'll find out what I am. I will be whatever I will be. My actions will speak for myself. My existence, my being is so far beyond your comprehension. There is no catalog of words in which I could use to fully explain to you where you would sit there and go, oh, I think I get it. You would never get it is what God is trying to say here. You'd never get it. I'm not explainable to you in this way. Have you ever had a question from your child? Be like, mom, how does this work? And you're like, you try and explain it, explain it, explain it. And then all of a sudden you, you get, you're, you're using frameworks. To, you know, why does the, the moon ha have an effect on, on, the, on, on the tides of the ocean? And you don't know the answer either, right? And so you're like, well, it does. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. And even if I did know, I don't know how I could put it into words so that you'd be like, oh, that makes sense. Nothing that I would say would make sense because I don't know how that works. So you just say, it just does, just trust me, let's go clamming, right? So like, 
I, I want to box it into, but, but you should know that, that, that these things are tied together and I don't know logistics of how, but it just does. Like it's so unexplainable that you, you look at your kid and you're like, I love your kid. I'm not trying to deprive you of information. I'm just trying to tell you that even if I was able to tell you, you might say, I get it. And in my mind, I'd be like, but you don't. God's going to Moses going like, you can ask me my name, but you're gonna try and fit it in this framework that's gonna be explainable and predictable in this more imminent frame of what I see, I get, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and you're gonna say, I get it. And you, you never really do though. I'm so much more than that. I will be whoever I will be. When we talk of God, we are talking of one who cannot be known through human reason and explanation. And that continues to be true for today. And the reason that that's important is because we live in a mostly a world where a lot of our things are explainable or we think that they will be, right? And then there is, exists with us and, and, and a lot of apologetics is being like, a lot of God is explainable. If you read these kind of books, they talk about special revelation and natural revelation. Special revelation being, we can know something about God we can know, how can we know? Because he made himself known through scripture, through the stories, through this. We can, we can know a little bit about God because we can go out at night and see these thunderstorms and all of these rainbows and all this stuff and be like, God speaks to us through the wonders of his creation. The book of Psalms is filled with that. God, I see your glory written in the heavens. I, I know a little, like your, your, your glory uh, goes beyond in all comprehension, right? So there's, there's definitely those things at place, but even within those, God says, those are just pieces of what I am. That's like a little bit of it, but it goes even beyond that. There was a, a term that used to be called dus abscondi, which means the God who hides himself. The God who reveals a little bit of himself to us uh, through scripture and through natural revelation, special revelation, all that, but exists beyond even all levels of comprehension beyond that. Uh, last week, I... I uh, was, in talking about imminence, talked about the opposite of it being this idea of transcendence. And, and uh, if everything that we want is, is tangible and natural and, and right here, um, then transcendence reflects something that is beyond and, and, and isn't, doesn't fit into those categories. And, and I said something about, you know, are we open to the idea of transcendence? We live 99% of our life in, in an in a imminent world where everything's explainable, predictable. Are we okay with a God who is beyond that? And somebody in the church sent me a question about transcendence and how do we get there and what do we, you know, how do we focus on more of that? Do we, are you saying I need to have more meditation in my life or more prayer or more weird home stuff? I don't even know, like, what does that look like and mean? Do I have to get into yoga? I'm not like, I don't look good in those pants, man. Like, how does this, how does this work? Uh, and and thinking through that in, in, in preparation for today, I thought, listen, the goal isn't necessarily more transcendence in your life. Like, I don't want God as transcendent to be like this escape hatch to be used in case of emergency. The goal isn't like, oh, well, don't worry, God's all of the unexplainable stuff. But the goal isn't transcendence in the face of imminence. I like, you like, we like living in a world that is more and more explainable. I love that my kid is able to go outside and be like rainbows, light reflecting off this. I don't want them to live in ignorance of that. I want them to see that. And then I also want them to kind of also point to like, that's a beautiful design, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how it got that way? Isn't it amazing that God, how do we know that that happened, that our brains function in a way that able, are able to kind of like consume that information, digest that information and see that information? Even in a more and more explainable world, the unexplainable God, the God who is God can still operate in this. How do we get that? How do our brains comprehend that? How do, how do we learn this kind of stuff? What about the stuff that we don't know? 
Listen, I know our world is increasingly closed and our, our need for an unexplainable God um, isn't as great as it used to be. And the numbers, I think, reflect this in decline, but there is still a place for this because God interacts, he has, he does, and he will. We know he has, we read about it, he does. We've seen things in our life that, have, that are kind of unexplainable, right? Even the fact Let's take it not from a scientific way. Let's do it from a historical angle for a moment. The, re, the, the thing that we celebrate this weekend is that a couple of hundred years ago, um, we declared our independence from a nation uh, across an ocean. And we can read it now and it feels so explainable. Well, here's what happened. We, you know, taxation without representation. And we were distance off and we had so much access to natural resources and we didn't need them anymore. And, but the fact that it all came together in that way, history speaks to, to, to things that previously would feel it's impossible to see how that would play out. That's so unlikely, that's so improbable. And yet history has a way of just doing things and being that way. And then after the fact, we go, well, that's kind of predictable. It was not predictable beforehand. Otherwise, King George would have never, never let the boats leave, the, leave the, their, their side of the pond. It would have felt impossible. These guys will never rebel against. They'll, they'll never do this. They'll never have enough resources. They'll never have enough life. That's always, we're just running out of land. Let's give them land over here. It it's all feels in that moment, it felt impossible. It felt unpredictable. It felt nothing. And then all of a sudden it does. And now we go, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But now it makes sense. But now it makes sense. Not in that moment, it didn't. I guarantee it. You read, you do the research on that. The improbability of a nation like America succeeding gives us reason every 4th of July to be like, this is a crazy experiment that worked, guys. It's unbelievable that a nation that late into kind of you know, existence came about and that it became the superpower that it is. Not to like glorify, um, trust me, I understand that. But the fact that it exists is unbelievable and good cause for celebration uh, tomorrow. So light off all of your fireworks. Don't do whistle and pleats at 2 a.m. That annoys Canberra. But everything else, I get it. It is an improbability. It is literally almost unexplainable, except that it actually happened. And so we celebrate that it actually happened. God's interaction in history is improbable. It's unlikely. Some would even say it's impossible. And yet we celebrate that it happened, that it does continue to happen within our community and that he promises he'll always be a part of this. That's the beauty of it. So I know we live in a more closed off, uh, you know, imminent, non-porous sort of existence. Everything's explainable, everything's predictable, but there is still room and there is still, if you're, if you're sitting there with arms crossed going, explain yourself, if you can do it in enough ways. And he's going, listen, I will be what I will be. I can't attach a name to this. I, I, I am all of that stuff, all of that things that happen. I, I am the unexplainable. I'm bigger than this. I'm, even if I was to kind of reason with you and, and go this way, my levels of comprehension are beyond yours. And so as a Christian, our, my response, our response is, thank you, God, for being a great God who, who has done some sort of special revelation, who continues to natural revelation. When I go and I see the enchantments in Leavenworth, when I go and see Lake Tahoe with the blue water, when I go and see all of these things, and I'm like, good grief, this is crazy design. This is unbelievable that there still exists in my closed off, predictable, explainable existence, room for a God who remains unpredictable, unexplainable beyond my levels of comprehension. Because that's the kind of God that I, that I think should exist, that, that I think does exist. 
I don't want a God that is, I know his name, I know everything about him, I know all the stuff. That's not really a God at all. That's something that we've created in our own way. Bart says this, to close, and I'm closing with this. The mysteries of the world are of such a kind that someday they can cease to be mysteries, but God is always a mystery. Perhaps the world isn't nearly as closed as some would like to think. And my hot take for us going into next week, which is the conclusion of this series, is simply this. The church is in a position to witness to the world that the strange God of the Bible who showed up against all odds, improbably, impossibly, made his way into existence, still indeed acts, and that is what the church is supposed to be for. To say, even in an explainable world, there it explains an unpredictable and unexplainable God, that we get a chance to come and worship together. So if you come back next week or watch online, this is what we're gonna be talking about. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that we would live with that hope too. We've come across instances in our lives where we say what we need is a, a miracle. What we need feels impossible. And by normal standards, it probably is. Um, we could never have that kind of, you know, we, there's, there's all kinds of barriers. There's all kinds of hills. There's all kinds of something that we would say, um, boy, what I need is a God who interacts inside. What I need is something beyond things. And, and we, apo- we apologize for those times when, when those things have taken place, when, when miracles really show up in unpredictable ways. And then years later, we figured out reasons to be able to reason it away and be like, well, now it all makes sense. Um, and, and really it was, it was you working behind the scenes the entire time. We, we, that's human of us. We, we know we do that. We, we do that historically. We, we do that in so many different ways. Um, but let us be people who continue to thrive and exist in a world that is becoming increasingly more and more uh, explainable. And that's great. And that's fun, a fun world, a, a, a safer world for our kids, a better outlook, all that kind of stuff. And yet may we always maintain room for a God who is unexplainable, who exists beyond this, who is so much greater than this, that your glory speaks in creation to something beyond. May we be open to that in our life. And then when we demand, explain yourself, your response is continually, I'll be what I will be. My actions will speak for themselves. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.